0: This is David Rovics and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. Good evening listeners. And Salut Babette. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show and tonight I'm recording this in Sydney. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're broadcasting, which is the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Tonight's show is about the New Deal, as climate change is forcing us into emergency mode.
2: Say don't you remember they call me Al it was Al all the time why don't you remember I'm your pal say buddy can you spare a dime
1: Many people are thinking back to the depression of the 1930s and World War II for the sort of scale and type of response we need. Bernie Sanders launched his Green New Deal proposal at a place called Paradise in California, where bushfires ripped through last year, killing 86 people and countless animals and destroying tens of thousands of homes. He had a bold plan for 20 million new jobs including regenerative agriculture and a wage guarantee for workers, transitioning out of fossil fuels. He called for utilities to be cooperatively owned and energy democracy with bans on imports and exports of oil and gas and a ban on fracking and a moratorium on permits to drill. He also wants America's role in spewing out climate-changing pollution to be acknowledged in its take in taking its fair share of reducing emissions worldwide through a 200 billion dollar green climate fund for less industrialized nations. This has been on the cards for ages but America hasn't been playing its part neither has Australia and he now wants to put that on the table very definitely. Now, maybe Australians don't thrill so much to the legacy of Roosevelt and his New Deal, which saw millions of trees planted in the Dust Bowl and flood control and lots of conservation, fire breaks done, and a real legacy, which is mythologized in America rather.
2: The CCC was a
3: win-win for FDR. He both put Hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people to work, and he also did something for posterity, for future generations,
2: for what we would now call the environment. I also remember fires, floods,
4: drought, erosion, soil gone. What do you have to live on? We were in a sad condition environmentally the word environmental wasn't there at the time basically but the situation was
5: and it was a critical situation we didn't have food we didn't have jobs i don't think people realize how close this
4: nation came to having a revolution
1: Revolution sounds rather frightening, so maybe the Green New Deal is a framework for us to prevent economic collapse, the collapse of food production and the community collapse, which global heating will intensify. As we go to air tonight, for example, the Liverpool Plains farmers will not be planting this year's wheat crop because they just haven't had enough rainfall and several New South Wales towns are facing a complete shortage of water running down to zero where they'll have to bring it in by trucks. Tonight we'll talk to Professor Sheldon who is um, an industrial relations expert at University of New South Wales and he was asked by CFMEU to research how the coal-fired power industry in various countries can transition towards the renewable energy source. He looks at the Ruhr, which was very orderly, and Appalachia, which was very chaotic, plus plenty of things in between. Then we'll talk to Jamie Yallop-Ferrant over in Western Australia about coal mining regions. Uh, She's interviewed lots of people in the community and she's interested in what they really want, what sort of transition they want, they want to get back to a sort of vibrant society and maybe that will be their transition that will provide the jobs they need. Then we have Michelle Maloney from the New Economic Network of Australia and Natasha Heenan, whose paper on the Green New Deal for Australia wants us to also decolonise, democratise and decommodify as well as decarbonising the economy. We'll finish with um, Emeritus Professor boris frankel from melbourne university who calls on us to go beyond a wish list
6: but before all this here's naomi klein whose new book on fire should be out soon what this means is that if we want change we are going to have to go deep down to the roots of these overlapping crises and we need to do it on an emergency basis because our house is on fire But here is the thing we must always remember. That house built on toxic ideas of sacrificial people, discounted futures, and the false promises of infinite growth and expansion was rigged to blow from the get-go. So let's put out the flames and let's build something different in its place. Something a little less ornate, but far more beautiful, with room for all who need shelter and care. Let's build a Green New Deal, this time for everyone. That's why you're here, right? You're here. You're not here to listen to speeches. You're here to get to work. And we have a lot of work to do if we're going to put this idea out into the world and if we are going to win. Now... The first thing to understand is there is no binder with the exact recipe or policy prescriptions. We are going to have to develop that democratically from below. But we have the rough idea. The Green New Deal is, quite simply, a proposal to address the climate catastrophe at the scale and speed that science and indigenous knowledge have told us again and again and again is required. And it also means putting the burning need for social and economic se- justice at the dead centre of this project.
1: Professor Peter Sheldon is at University of New South Wales. His Industrial Relations Research Centre was commissioned by the CFMMEU Trade Union, to find out what is best practice in winding down the coal-fired power sector.
7: The question that exercised us here is if those power stations are going to close down, these are coal-fired power stations are going to close down, and those coal-fired power stations are often located in communities either entirely or partly dependent on the income that those power stations uh, generate and distribute in the community, whether through uh, contracts that they provide to local businesses or through the salaries, uh, wages that they pay employees who, who spend those in the local community, if, if those communities are dependent so heavily on those power stations, how can we, in Australia, best transition a scenario where those those communities and the workers who work in the power stations uh, are able to not just survive, but to flourish? Yes. So that
1: does well, that make sense? It makes total sense. And I've just been reading that book by Dennis Glover about, I think, it's, we are not an economy, we're a society. And he talks about Doveton and the manufacturing industry there was just wound down and wound down. And the whole social fabric, he just describes it very well. All the things that, indefinable things that make a community were trashed. And um, we don't want that to happen again. And, and the Latrobe Valley has already experienced it once. And, like, we just can't do this again. I love the idea of getting ahead of a crisis and you mentioned this in your work not being reactive and the German people in the Ruhr Valley um, transition they really consulted so many people not just government and business but a lot of other stakeholders in the community including unions and non-governmental groups But I want to know what concrete proposals have you learned from your research that we could perhaps adapt here for a rapid closure of our power plants?
7: There are a couple of elements here. One is it's not just about speed. It's really about it being planned in a rational way and that the planning takes in as many social stakeholders as possible. So your point about Germany and wide level consultation is well taken, and our uh, our report in its recommendations called for a just transition authority, which would be tripartite, so government, employers, in this case owners of the power stations, and unions representing the workers, to develop a timetable, a, you know, a phase. Schedule of closures. But the obvious place to start, and this is what Germany did too, is he'd start with the oldest ones, which are typically also the dirtiest ones and the most dangerous. Um, part of the process could be identifying which employees are, uh, would really like to take uh, early retirement and finding a, a formula that is um, fair to them to allow them to retire with dignity then looking at maybe the next cohort of workers by age and qualification and seeing whether their best opportunity is to transition them to one of the nearby power stations so they don't have to leave their homes. They don't have to sell their homes, they don't have to leave their homes. They uh, will be doing jobs which are fairly similar to the jobs they're already doing. It means the receiving power station will be getting workers who are skilled uh, and knowledgeable in the industry that reduces their hiring and training costs. Then you think about the next cohort for whom there may not be a future, a local future in the power uh, coal fired power industry because because of the length of their career ahead of them still, and you consider retraining them during the five-year close-down period. So when you talk before about being reactive and always just, which uh, is a bit the Australian way, you create, a, you create a crisis and then you try to deal with it post-crisis rather than planning ahead, which is the... German way, uh, rather than waiting for all these employees to be made unemploy- unemployed by the close down of a power station, which is a, a bit like the one at uh, in in uh, Hazelwood, where they gave so little notice. If you've got a five year window, as Liddell talked to, as AGL talked about for Liddell, or a seven year window as they first proposed, you've got time to identify working with those employees what they'd like to do, what their strengths are, where they'd like to transition and provide them not only just training in that period with time off for training from their jobs in the power station, but also the chance to work part-time in their new uh, areas of employment to give them not just the technical skills to transition, but the employment experience to transition.
2: Mm.
1: Well, I'm sorry you say that's the Australian way because that's... Terrible! I'm sure there must be some examples in our history of industrial relations where we've done this sort of thing, anticipated something's happening and, and made adjustments. But you've told us about the Germans. I, I think they have everything in their society leads to them being able to do things in this very measured and methodical way.
7: Large-scale examples of planning ahead, thinking ahead, is to, um, is to point to the closure of the BHP in Newcastle, yeah.
6: um,
7: where there was a substantial amount of plan- uh, forward planning, both by the company, to some extent by the local state government and local government. It wasn't as successful as the German models, but it, it was more successful than a lot of the other things we've done, which have been very much to leave it to the market. So I think, I think the difference between the Australian approach And let's say the German approach in the Ruhr, but also in Holland, there was a a major uh, example of this as well, is that in Australia, governments have on the whole, particularly coalition governments, have on the whole put their faith in the market and believed very much that these were commercial decisions by owners of capital, by owners of plants, and that they knew best. But when you close down a power station or a mine that provides employment income uh, for a local area, then this becomes uh, a social decision and hence it is not left up to private owners. Uh, private owners work with government and with unions, but also with other stakeholders to uh, plan and manage the process. So Labor went to the last federal election in May this year with a fairly well defined just transition policy as part of its program. Now what we know is that labour lost and not only is it lost, it suffered severe setbacks in uh, coal mining regions, in certainly in Queensland and New South Wales and in areas where coal-fired power station workers live and work. This is a very vague question because unless we are able to inform people broadly, really broadly, about the advantages of just transition for those people, for their communities, they will not surprisingly be both frightened and hostile to suggestions which they see as sacrificing them and their families' futures for an environmental cause that they may or may not support. So I don't know whether they support or don't support notions of, of anthropogenic climate change but certainly these are workers in largely well-paid jobs because of their strong union. They're also in localities where there are often very few alternative forms of employment that provide anything like the benefits that they currently enjoy in their jobs. So if you say to these people, I think the environmental movement has tended to do at times, you need to lose jobs because this will help climate change. And there will be green jobs for you sometime in the future, but we can't tell you where and we can't tell you when. And we can't tell you what sort of jobs, actually. Well, we can point to the type of jobs because we've seen them overseas, but they're not going to be in your area. They're going to be doing, you know, solar solar installations on roofs in Sydney and Melbourne. But mm. These people don't live in Sydney and Melbourne. No. They can't afford to sell their houses in, in uh, provincial towns or regional areas And by, you know, it's just impossible. Some forces were able to frighten these people that they would be the main victims Mm. of climate change action policy. It's not unpredictable the way those areas voted. So I'm not saying that those workers voted that way. I have no idea. But we can see their communities voted that way because we can see the electoral map and what happened to it. I think, humbly, this is one of the great nubs of the climate change Policy debate for people who are interested in doing something active about climate change. We need to find a way to make sure that those people not only know about the opportunities, but they need to know that they don't have to sell up where they live and travel across the country to get one of those jobs.
1: Yeah, and a lot of communities are working on a diversification. You know, I've met people in Bega Valley, for example, you know, the diversification of their economy to... Decarbonise, you know, and there'll be jobs in that. But these are community, grassroots sort of, um, and inviting academics in to to give the the backbone to it. But I, I can't see it coming top down. So, uh, well, I mean, our
7: our argument in the report is it has to be the whole just transition process needs to be both top down and bottom up. Yeah. If it's bottom up, I mean, there are wonderful organisations, for example, in the Pro Valley as you know very well. Um, that are doing bottom-up work, but they lack capital yeah. to expand their activities. Sure. They lack the sort of legislative support that would make their uh, initiatives more fruitful and um, extensive. Um, and you can't just have it top-down. This is one of the the failures uh, to some extent in the Newcastle uh, BHP steelwork closure that too much of it was top-down and not enough of it was bottom-up. So you need you need to have something like the Just Transition Authority, which at the the highest level makes decisions about the orderly closure, phase closure of power stations, and how this will take place and what will happen to those workforces. You need substantial levels of government funding to support those initiatives. And here I would say I think it's really important we don't see that government funding as a cost. But that we see it as an investment. Right. Because it's vastly cheaper to do it right the first time than pick up the pieces afterwards. Oh, as no, we yes. know from the La Trobe Valley, yeah. that, you know, how many families have been um, terribly damaged by loss of employment and all the negative uh, socioeconomic yeah. factors that flow from that. Yeah. So, um, it's an investment in those communities, and if we do it well and we do it early, those communities will thrive.
1: Okay. Well, look, I really found that verse very interesting, and thank you so much for giving us so much time. It's been really interesting to talk to you, Peter. So thanks for thank speaking to the listeners. Thank you, Vivian. It's been a pleasure. I hope our listeners will read your paper. It's called The Ruhr or Appalachia. I think you can find that quite easily. Thank you.
2: Say, buddy, can you spare a dime?
1: Jamie Yellow ferrand is highly recommended to this show by Beyond Zero Mission. They told me she's a stellar campaigner. I'd like We'd like to hear about her, especially her experience in Western Australia because we don't have many people talking to us from there. Well, what are the issues for Western Australians when it comes to, for example, talking about a Green New Deal or a just transition for workers?
3: So here in Western Australia, we obviously have a very very um, skewed economy to high industry and to um, carbon intensive industries so i was at um, a conference recently where they did some economic analysis and i'm not clear specifically on the numbers but it was something like about 32 or 34 percent of our economy in um, western australia is based on mining and extractive industries so when we talk about you know, closing down coal and gas or we talk about ending fossil fuels, a lot of people feel that really closely to themselves as ending their livelihoods, ending their work, ending their lifestyle, their experiences. And so part of that conversation, um, part of the nuance here in WA is finding ways to have that conversation where people can see opportunities and where people can see what they can move to. So we have a a skewed economy, we've had boom and bust cycles over and over again. We have people that are really, really succeeding within those um, existing industries without clear transition plans for what happens for those workers. And then we have a lot of people in the community that haven't benefited from those um, boom times and all of those issues. And so we have, for example, the um, the Collie community where the mines there are not economically viable. We know that we need to move away from coal. There's all of those pieces. But for that community specifically, it's not as simple as switching off coal and switching on renewables. One of the challenges for workers in those industries that I've been hearing over the years of, of in dialogue is that you know the jobs aren't necessarily comparable. They may not be um, of the highest level. They may not be secure. And also in places like Colley, it may not be the best location for renewable industry and larger renewable projects. So part of that work and the conversation around a Green New Deal and just transitions is a much more nuanced conversation, and that's the kind of conversation that we're having here in WA, is that more um, if, if these workers from this particular industry need to move into a different Industry, how do we replace industry with industry and how do we do that in a way that we make sure we leave no one behind in the community and we take people with us?
1: Yeah, this is a historic moment, I think. It's a big, you know, people often say to me, well, that was a good question when I interviewed them. Well, Mm -hmm. I think this is the question. How do we reimagine ourselves, reimagine our economy so that it's a safe continuity for people they can't be just ripped up and um, trashed as we've seen you know the political implications of that say in america rust belt people voting for the most you know things not in their own interests really but it just sounds like a a tough man telling them i'll I'll make you great again Um, yeah
3: and we see it across the country here and in um, regional communities and rural communities where people have been left behind and they don't experience being listened to and heard and I think one of the things I've picked up in some conversations is I, I kinda, I'm finally understanding why the Make America Great Again is actually so appealing. And part of it, I think, is because people want to go back. They want to go back to a time, and we often look at that as progressive people and go, they want to you know, go back to a time that didn't exist, or they want to go back to... Um, you know kind of a time when you know white was right or something but it's also about wanting to go back to a time when there was vibrancy in our communities where yeah, people took care of each that, other that was where true. you know like where <laughs> where um in the collie community i was talking to an elder down there and he was say he said you know I, I want it you know i want to go back to how it was and i said what what do you mean by that and he said you know there used to be a couple of cinemas here the kids had things to do there was entertainment there were activities there was mm. vibrancy in the community and so i think part of it is How, When we're reimagining, we need to reimagine our communities. How do we make sure we're taking care of people? And then those things, that's actually the transition. They're the industries and the the things that we want to be investing in. Of course, we need 100% renewables and we also need to transition our exports. There's no kind of doubt about that. But we also know that, you know, childcare and healthcare and looking after people and teaching and education and all of those activities are actually low carbon activities and they're incredibly important
1: and they're all good for the gdp it's all part of the economy so it's not as if we're a lot of people on i hear a lot of media and they sort of say you know you're going to trash the economy if you follow this climate change agenda i think no the economy can manage on all these other services and also the economy is a made-up construct, right? So the economy is
3: um, simply a way in which we share goods and resources and we exchange goods and resources. So part of that conversation is how do we have an economy and reimagine an economy that actually works for people and for country and for place, not just an economy that is about profit for a few over the benefits of many. But the other piece around the, those workers that are in um, kind of mining industries, for example, um, and those that are involved in construction, We need to do a tremendous amount of adaptation in our country. Over the next coming decades, the sea levels are rising, we have to move a heap of infrastructure inland, we have to totally alter the design of some of our cities, our towns, our communities. And I kind of think that a lot of people that are working in mining and construction and extractive industries have the skills to transition into those adaptation kind of projects and some of those adaptation projects are decades in the planning and decades in the implementation and the building of. And so I think if we can stop looking at this 3-year cycle and in communities we can start looking over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, what actually are we going to need to be, where are we going to need to be in 30 years and how do we plan for that? Mm-hmm. And we know that that's going to be a time with increasing crisis. We know it's going to be a time of um, natural event, not natural events, but natural disasters and events that are exacerbated by climate. We know that there's going to be these things, things coming. So how are we preparing for that and how are we doing that as a community together so that, again, we're not leaving people behind in that journey, in that conversation, and we're making sure those that struggle get the most support that they can to be able to adapt or to be able to deal with things.
6: Has your organization been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organizational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organizational group behind Melbourne's longest running activist radio station.
2: I want I want
1: Michelle Maloney is a lawyer and co founder of the New Economic Network in Australia. And networking is their core business. They have hubs in many places, including Melbourne, Brisbane and Newcastle. We spoke to Michelle once before about wild law, but today I want to find out from her what's happening about the new economy.
5: What we really want is a blend of what Aboriginal mates would call the ancient economy, of sharing, caring and caring for country, um, but also newer initiatives around um, how we organise our businesses, how we make sure that ordinary workers have a say over the work they do, they can play a part in owning the businesses they own, that our energy sources transition away from destructive fossil fuels towards renewables, um, that our housing and our health sectors are affordable and accessible for everybody. And I guess predominantly a lot of us are very interested in the community economy framework, which many wonderful folks in Australia work on, which is really saying how do we Transition away from really distant and often destructive corporate control over resources and places and businesses and money um, to make sure that local people have a greater say over what's really happening. Some of that involves the just transitions movement. And as you've mentioned, people are in coal uh, dominant or other mining areas that people would like to see move away to a more healthy um, way of being. We really do have to work together as a community and eventually if we can get good leaders to help Really invest in the transition that's needed away from industries that are not healthy for people and the environment towards um, diverse economic activities that are healthy for everybody.
1: Oh well, everyone would agree with that. Look, one of the big ideas around at the moment is the Green New Deal, and it animates many people. And we've just heard from Boris Fränkel tonight on this program, and he said it's however not a degrowth strategy we hear a lot about degrowth and flatline you know um, steady state economy but he said that the Green New Deal is not like that it's an attract it's very attractive because um, so many people have insecure work now and you know they don't have any as you say there's no democracy in the workplace they don't have any say over how things are produced or what things are produced and so this Green New Deal would be make thousands, millions of jobs in regenerative agriculture, reforesting, you know, all of those things that are so urgent to stop the things that uh, climate change has created already. And I wondered, how does the Green New Deal fit in with your vision of a new economy?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really um, topical issue. Um, We, Nina has monthly webinars, Mm -hmm. and we've got a whole range of ways for people to engage with these conversations. And in our recent webinar on the Green New Deal, uh, we had Tim Hollow from the Green Institute and Professor Broman Morgan from UNSW discuss some of these issues. From the perspective of analysing the Green New Deal from an Australian point of view, it's really quite interesting because the New Deal arose um, out of the Depression in the USA where there was pressure on the government to make a response so that people could restructure and have jobs. And, you know, for all of the... Confusion of the last federal election. Sometimes having less strong government policies is obviously the quickest and fastest way to have a large investment in um, a societal-wide transition. The Green New Deal, which, as the, the way it's called for in different pockets of the USA, um, it, it re-emerged um, around the global financial crisis uh, back in 2007-2008. Uh, People were calling for restructuring at the macroeconomic level. But right now we've got um, a number of leaders at the local level in the USA calling for it because they want to see government investment, um, so state-centred control, invest in um, employment and industries that are, you know, going to respond to climate change. And that's a terrific idea. Um, In Australia, we really need to think about what that looks like in our particular situation. Ideally, if we did have a government that was interested in something like Um, large-scale investment in positive projects to reduce carbon emissions to transition our economy to a better healthier future then I'd be totally supportive of that but right now we don't have a lot of government leaders who are really analyzing any of these systems I guess in the way that we'd like them to Um, so from my personal point of view if we had government leaders interested in something like a Green New Deal but they made it Australian (laughs) I'd be very supportive of that Interestingly, though, it's probably worth noting that a Green New Deal or anything to do with these large-scale government investment, um, hopefully would be designing ways to catalyse civil society. So we don't just want to rely on government investment, particularly in Australia at the moment, because a lot of our leaders don't seem to be that way inclined.
1: No. Um,
5: we, we still need to really ensure that we all work together as ordinary humans in our communities and our societies and civil society members um, to keep building... Good positive initiatives that support local business, local enterprise, and you know local farms, all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's all good. All opportunities should be explored for a positive transition.
1: Yes, I agree with you about the um, participation, more you know, democratising of the whole process. Because uh, I, I was very shocked to re- hear uh, someone from the Electrical Trades Union who told us about the solar industry and in, in Queensland, these big solar farms are being put up, but he said they're not being put up with. Licensed electricians—you know, people with good union jobs—they're sort of um, backpackers or people on visas who are being paid very below, uh, like ten dollars an hour. I think he said, and they're not—they're not electricians doing that work. And he said it's on un- well, un- safe, is it? No. no. And I guess this so, is something worth <clears> thinking about. So the transition has with- to be just and also like legal. <laughs>
5: Well, that's right. But also within the new economy framework, you know, many of us desperately want to transition to an economy that's low carbon and much friendlier for the environment and friendlier for humans. But we do have to watch that we don't replace sort of big monolithic corporate systems with another big monolithic corporate system, yep. you know, if solar farms are terrific, but who owns them? Who profits from them? Where's the money going? Yep. Um, you know, and are we as a community accepting our own responsibility for not just lapping down tons and tons of renewable um, systems that have already used minerals and invested. You know, we need to think carefully about who owns what, who's being supported to design and build, and then long-term oversee and manage. And that's why there's a lot of amazing community-based energy companies and energy initiatives in Australia that are really worth supporting. But as always, you know, the price of being a good citizen is being, I guess, vigilant and diligent and keeping an eye on, what investments are coming into your community and don't just support, you know, the next big thing because it might be owned by corporations far away who still don't care about what's going
1: on. Thank you very much, Michelle. So we've been talking to Michelle Maloney who is uh, with the New Economics Network Australia, NINA. Tonight's guest is Natasha Heenan. She's a PhD candidate at Sydney University and she's been publishing quite a bit about the Green New Deal. So I'd like to ask her about... um, You wrote in Junkie that voters in the climate election were just not inspired by the bloodless promises of climate action. And I'm just wondering, as one of the BZE people said, he thought just the wind farms and the solar companies should have just gone up to Townsville and Gladstone and just opened a shopfront and shown the workers and shown local people that there were lots of jobs in the pipeline with renewable energy. Do you think as part of a Green New Deal we should just get private industry to step up and show a, a way forward with renewable energy jobs, for example?
0: For me, the Green New Deal is um, about the opposite, it's about uh, the social ownership of energy, in particular, and making sure that the energy transition is understood through the lens of climate justice, and not just kind of a technocratic transition that's you know about optimizing Australia for you know maximum eco-efficiency in terms of energy production. So I think uh, we actually need to talk about the social relations of energy production and what worker ownership would look like, what social ownership would look like, what devolved public ownership would look like um, which can be thought of in terms of something called energy democracy. I don't think that that would have been a good solution to have a bunch of private industry coming into the sector. Uh, We already know uh, through unions involved in the energy sector that the working conditions leave a lot to be desired and it doesn't, a green job isn't automatically a good job and there's a lot of concern um, about exploitation in that industry as well as Uh, unsustainable uh, global
1: supply chain. Right so this is really new thinking for a lot of people certainly not not on the mainstream media I don't think. I agree with what you said about the work conditions. Uh, I think they're unknown to most people it was unknown to me. I heard a person from the electrical trades union talking about the solar industry and he said a lot of the big solar farms are being put in by backpackers and Filipino workers on visas and they weren't electricians they weren't in the union they and they they were doing work that was potentially quite dangerous not supervised properly. To me climate change is so urgent uh, and it just shows how much needs to be done every time I think about I think how could anyone be unemployed there's so much to be done if someone would create projects and I suppose I'm I'm part of the older generation and I like Even though I know the history has been romanticised but I like those projects in the Roosevelt era, the New Deal where millions of trees were planted and flood control and soil restoration were achieved and there's a lasting legacy of that in the Dust Bowl Three million people were were employed uh, young people, young men, and I know I looked at the out it they only got five dollars a month, but twenty five dollars was sent home to their mother or to their wife, and so the money was flowing through to households. Is this how you would see a green New Deal working with big government projects like that one of the reforestation and um, you know, correcting soil erosion and that
0: what you're referring to with the New deal I think Although it had benefits, it was part of a kind of deeply flawed and quite discriminatory program that was designed to really reignite the engine of capitalist growth. So I guess when we're talking about a deal, we want to be making sure that we're talking about a social compact rather than a deal with capital or a deal with the state. So um, I think what we can take from the New Deal is the ambition and the scale of the transformation that occurred, but not much else. To be honest, the massive investment, a um, public investment through, uh, you know, um, public works, especially in a job guarantee, we need to think very carefully about how that would, uh, how a demand for that would emerge, and how that would be enacted by the current Australian state. And so, I guess at this point in time, given the forces that we're faced with here, um, it would need to be at the most evolved level possible. But I think the demand itself. Is something that could become quite popular for a massive um, investment in a job guarantee program. As you say, there's so much work that needs to be done. Just all the work that's being done for free as well, which needs to be paid, social reproduction. But instead, we've got a crisis of underemployment. And then when people have a job, it's kind of, you know, the rise of these piecemeal, gig work type jobs.
1: It's very insecure, you know, it's in my lifetime I've seen it going from people who generally expected to have a, you know, a full time job or a part time job that with some security, but now it's all casualised and very insecure, so. That just keeps mm. people anxious and powerless. So we want to give them a, a positive vision. If you, I, just kind of, I didn't quite understand some of what you said about the New Deal. You said keep the scale and the ambition. But so what sort of work? Say, by magic, you were able to implement a, a new dispensation for workers. What, what would you implement for climate action? You know, what would you, where would you start? Oh, I think definitely a job
0: guarantee is that would be um, high on my list. But in terms of what the work looks like, I think that has to be determined at the local level. And that's what I've seen in most job guarantee proposals is that it would be uh, a federally funded or a state funded program, but determined by um, communities so that people actually get what they want and need and work is provided that helps people survive and thrive. Um, Right now, a lot of the work that we do uh, for, for some people really helps no one and actively harms communities. So mm. it would be transitioning people to a program of work that is something that they contribute and, and know that it's actually helping that community.
1: Oh, yes. I've met many people in the unions who say, we don't want to work out on an oil rig, polluting. We'd, you know, be happier to use our skills doing something that's beneficial to our, our children. So I, I think they, they certainly are, you know, they're ahead of this in their thinking, but how does the economy push them when the jobs are on the in the big pay is still in those fossil fuel industries. Exactly and the private
0: sector isn't creating those jobs so uh, it's up to us to create the public investment uh, for people to be able to do that really necessary work.
1: Right. Well look we used to worry about climate deniers and I've never in fact interviewed a climate denier I just decided at the beginning to ignore them but they have been very influential and Yet you are now worrying about something different. You, you say they've turned into climate opportunists and even eco-fascists. Can you tell us about them?
0: You know, companies seeing climate change as a massive opportunity for them to make even more profits uh, when the reason we got to the point in terms of the degradation of human and other animal life and the whole rest of the natural world that we're a part of the reason we got to this point is because of the you know, rampant accumulation of capital, pursuit of profit and growth for all else. Yeah. So that can't be the model that we go forward with. We can't use the same tools um, that got us into this crisis to get us out. So I think that climate opportunism is something we need to watch out for and never think that corporations or capital are going to be our allies in this fight. Um, And eco-fascism is not something that we've seen in Australia. I I wouldn't want to kind of um, make it this big overblown threat. But in terms of the response to uh, natural disasters from, you know, very wealthy countries like Australia and and the US to be, uh, let's close the borders, let's keep keep climate refugees out. We can completely imagine something like that happening here uh, when you consider the last 15 years of border policy or refugee policy in Australia.
1: Yeah, I think we're very slow to realise this because we're so in denial about any, um, you know, the fact that we've colonised here and um, Aboriginal people have been pushed off. Um, So we're in denial about that, that's for sure. For Melbourne listeners, is there any um, group there of the uh, Climate Justice Collective? Yeah, definitely. All right, well, people can look that up. So that was Natasha Heenan, who's a PhD student at Sydney University in political economy, and uh, she's been talking about the Green New Deal.
2: They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plough or guns to bear eyes was always there right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread
1: Boris Frankel is a social theorist and economist, and best of all, a former broadcaster at Radio 3CR. His most recent book is about the politics of growth and post-capitalist futures. It's called Fictions of Sustainability. He's at Melbourne University in the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. So a very warm welcome to you, Boris. Can you start by giving a... Thanks very much. uh, Could you give a cheerio to 3CR just to start and remind listeners of the show you used to do?
7: Well,
4: uh, it goes back a number of years. Um, I used to do the Stick Together show, a regular commentary uh, each week uh, and uh, did other programs like Yarra Bank and so forth, so (laughs) a range of programs over the years.
1: Oh, that's great. I we ha- I meet 3CR people. I met one person who's now the Timorese ambassador, and he used to do a Timor calling program at 3CR, so it, uh, it's a good college for future developments, I think. Um, now, listeners, I met Boris Frankel at a Greens education forum in Redfern Town Hall, and the subject was the Green New Deal. He called on the Greens to do the more detailed work beyond the wish list that they took to the election. So, Boris, I want to know how a Green New Deal would cope with, as you described, our very lopsided Australian economy.
4: Yes, well, it's um, it's a major problem for any social change organisation or movement. Uh, coming to terms with the fact that uh, Australia is very much dependent on its exports of minerals and agricultural produce, and that constitutes around over two-thirds of our exports. And yet we import so many goods and services as well. But uh, most of our manufactured goods are imported. Any national government from Canberra would have to implement a new deal, taking into account the quite different... Um, needs and uh, employment options and environmental factors that uh, exist in Australia.
1: Well, you, you suggested that the only way we could get anything like a Green New Deal would be if there was a coalition of, say, the Greens and the Labour Party or perhaps some other combination of our parties. But... What would it look like? How would you start? I mean, Bernie Sanders is starting to talk as if it's a reality to him, uh, you know, things he'd put in place. Well, how would you start?
4: Bernie Sanders is going for the presidential job, and uh, under that system, the president has a lot more power than the prime minister in Australia, in the sense that both of them, have, as a prime minister, is only a member of the House of Representatives. But the problem is that, at the moment, the Labour Party doesn't support a Green New Deal. It does it does support aspects of it, but um, and the Greens, who advocate some version of a Green New Deal, are too weak in their own right. So it's impossible to see. How any green New deal could come about unless there was a coalition between the two parties?
1: Yeah, but say there was. How would you start like you're an economist and you know how and also a social theorist, so how would you get society to want this enough to go well, behind it?
4: To first of all um, uh, initiate a green New deal, there has to be uh, a, an overwhelming majority of the voters who support. Uh, doing something about uh, uh, dramatically reducing fossil fuel emissions, it would have to really have uh, not only that, but it would have to be able to come up with a proposal that um, provided alternative income and jobs for those um, uh, industries and export earnings that are no longer derived from uh, coal and Uh, various other, and and, um, natural gas. I mean, when we take the two of those together, they account for almost $85 billion or more of export income. So if you phased them out over, say, a 10-year period, you would have to be able to show the Australian voting public that you can uh, generate economic uh, activity and provide jobs by uh, seeking alternative either taxation or various new forms of employment. Now, that's a very tall order for the Labour Party at the moment because they are bitterly opposed, certain sections of the Labour Party, to even declaring that they're opposed to a Adani, let alone uh, uh, cutting back on major fossil fuel uh, um, exports.
1: But it seems like an impossible task to me to wind down our exports in coal and gas by, I think the Greens said, by taking away their subsidies. And a lot of people in civil society say, yes, take away the fossil fuel subsidies. But simultaneously, you know, in the next, in this window of 10 or 12 years, simultaneously building up this new revenue stream from new industries.
4: Well, it's not just new industries, but um, we'll look at the existing industries and insofar as the Greens propose to close the tax loopholes and the tax avoiders and tax um, all those, uh, for example, natural gas exporters. I mean, they, 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 they just get away with paying virtually zero taxes in this country. So um, you could start with those proposals. Let's look overall at Australia as one of the affluent OECD countries. Now, the average tax paid in as a proportion of, uh, of GDP, of gross domestic product, the average tax of OECD countries is around 34% of GDP. In Australia, we um, only pay, we're a low-taxing country, and we only pay about 27, a bit over 27% of GDP. Now, that's equivalent to losing over 125 billion dollars of tax revenue every year. Now imagine what you could do if you had another 120 to 130 billion dollars extra each year to pay for all the various neglected services for public housing and transport public transport and health and all the other desperately needed type of activities which are now the main employers in Australia. The health sector is the largest employer, education is one of the largest, Um, and uh, so that you could definitely increase employment by uh, changing the tax mix.
1: I want to take a more international perspective, you know, like a more moral position now. We, we heard recently in the Pacific Island Forum, you know, they highlighted the pressing need for us to come up with a future beyond coal, to imagine it, to make a timetable for it, to just detail how it would happen. And even though I, I at that time, the deputy prime minister down at Wagga, Wagga was annoyed. He said he was annoyed that islanders might be wanting us to wind down our industry just so they could survive, you know, the effrontery of it. I think. Those people were really asking us to make a sacrifice in the name of just them having a future at all. And we're going to see, we see in these marches lots of slogans, no new coal, no new gas. It's so simple, but I want to know how you can nudge that to happen. Say the public want it, but how economically?
4: And a Green New Deal would not come about by simply having a government elected for one term. It would have to. It would have to be able to, whether it was a coalition or the ALP in its own right or whatever the combination or a new set of parties uh, that are hard to imagine at this point. Mm. But in, in the short term, um, a government would have to be able to show that it, that it is not um, going, going to simply lose its agenda to an opposition that is desperately trying to remove all its policies, just as, say, Abbott did with Gillard's carbon tax and so forth. What we have to be very conscious of, and this is the very difficult issue of how to get people to support a transitional type of economy, um, moving to a, a different form of consumption doesn't mean that there is no economic growth. It simply means that economic growth does not take place at the same rate uh, in the area of material consumption. That is, uh, there's not an endless growth uh, in uh, purchasing uh, new cars or larger houses or oh, yes. a whole set of endless material yeah. goods. But you can have economic growth based on providing essential universal basic services. There are just large pockets of Australian society, as in any country around the world, where at least 40 or more percent of the population go without. So it's a matter of drafting the the various new options of growth in non-environmental, non-environmentally polluting or destructive uh, activities and um, and and reducing or degrowing decelerating those destructive um, aspects of the economy and remember Australia is not some trivial little country people think oh Australia can't do anything Australia is depending on the the, the way that people assess it is either the 13th or the 14th largest. Economy in the
1: world. Oh, look, this is lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Boris. I'd love to talk to you again. And I haven't read your book yet, Fictions of Sustainability. So that was uh, Boris Frankel, who's at Melbourne University. Thank you for listening to this Green New Deal program, listeners. It's the first, I hope, of many, because we need to do now putting the flesh on the bones of the economic change that we need to have. Short of revolution, it's going to be a massive amount of work, as Naomi Klein said and thank you I'd like to thank the guests tonight which were Professor Peter Sheldon from University of New South Wales Jamie Yellop farrant from Western Australia uh, M- Michelle Maloney from um, Queensland in the New Economic Network Australia uh, Natasha Heenan from Sydney University and Boris Frankel from Melbourne University Production tonight thank you to Andy and Michaela have helped me get this to air and thank you especially to Radio Skid Row in Sydney who have lent me their studios and been so welcoming and kind to me and made me feel like really one of them so thank you to them for letting me record this show in Sydney Uh, so we'll go up with a bit of music and please listen in next week Uh, plenty of action in the community but I haven't got time to tell you about it now I'm sure you can tell me about it I'm always looking out for your emails about what's on and what I can direct listeners to do for climate action. So thank you very much, good night and good luck.